Hey guys, welcome to the show. Before we begin, I'd like to let you know that you can find us on Twitter at ICGAW, that's I-C-G-A-W, and email us at ICGAWpod at gmail.com. Today, at the end of the show, we'll be checking out a question about acquiring players like Jeff Skinner that was tweeted in, so please feel free to add to the conversation and shoot them in and tell your friends to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. All right, here we go. my friends. Welcome to It Can't Get Any Worse, America's Worst Podcast for America's Worst Hockey Team. I'm your host, Jay, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about the relatively moderate performances of rookies across the league in our What Are You Reading section. Uh, We'll be reviewing a four-game stint against the Flames, Senators times two, and the Rangers, and we'll be looking ahead to games against the Canadians, Canucks, and Lightning. And We'll finish up today's show talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league and answering a really great question tweeted in to us this week. If you enjoyed the show, we would so appreciate it if you dropped us a five-star review on iTunes. We so appreciate the support and kind words. Moving on into what are you reading, our new section where we unpack something written about the league around town. Um, This comes from, or these two articles come from The Athletic. And the first show or first show first article is from uh Duhatchik and it's the Duhatchik notebook this rookie class actually playing like rookies a look at shot volume it's from November 2nd and really what this article explores or the part of this article that I'm going to talk about what it explores is um is this a year that NHL rookies start actually looking like rookies again Um, We have been spoiled for the last few seasons. We had two years with four superstar elite level rookie talents coming in. We had our McDavid McDavid and Eichel year. We had our Matthews and Line year. And quoting from the article here, none of the four disappointed. And the supporting casts, their rookie seasons were pretty great too. Our Tammy Panarin, the eventual Calder Cup winner, plus Max Domi, Shane Gothispear, Dylan Larkin, and Nick uh, Nick Ehlers in McDavid's rookie year, and then William Nylander, Mitch Marner, Sebastian Ajo, Matthew Kachuk, Zach Wierenski, Braden Point, Miko Rantanen, Jake Gensel, and Ivan Provorov in Matthew's rookie year. Um, now, obviously, something to note is that not all of those guys were drafted in those years. Some of those guys are actually on the same team. If you picked out that Marner... Uh, Nylander and Matthews are all mentioned in the same year, and those guys are all Toronto guys, but they were all unveiled as NHL rookies this year. And last year, while they were not quite as well hyped, there was still a really impressive rookie class with Matthew Barzell, uh, Clayton Keller, Yanni Gord, Kyle Connor, Brock Besser, Alex DeBrincat, Nico Hershier, Pierre-Luc Dubois, Mikhail Sergachev, Charlie McAvoy, all making their debuts as official rookies in the league. And 
that, while it showed kind of a waning trend in rookie performance, it was still pretty strong. This year is a really significant drop-off, and we really got to look at um, what's a little different this year. We're a month in, and we've kind of been far from dazzled by the members of this rookie class who aren't named Elias Peterson. And the article notes Peterson as just the runaway winner for the NHL Rookie of the Month. Uh, in October, he had seven goals, three points, or sorry, seven goals, three assists for 10 points in eight games before he got squished and had that concussion and missed a couple games. In that press release announcing that decision of Elias Peterson as Rookie of the Month, there was no mention of Rasmus Dahlin. Andrei Svechnikov, Jesperi Kotkaniemi, Casey Middlestat, or Ryan Donato, who were all those really highly thought of prospects going into this season. So there's a noted shift in performance this year, and the article specifically quotes uh, current TSN analyst and a guy who was a GM for like five minutes, Craig Button. And he has an interesting quote, says, the term I would use as it's a market correction. We've had this real spike in young talent, but it doesn't change the fact that a talent that's ready is ready, and a talent that isn't, isn't. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be good players, they're just at an age where they haven't developed yet. He goes on to use a pretty interesting education analogy. He says, to me, judging a player over a month into his rookie NHL season is like taking a freshman that got into Harvard, who you know has exceptional talent, but struggled on their first test. And you conclude, I don't know if they're ever going to graduate. Nowadays, you aren't. Nowadays, you are judged as a bust if you only have one goal through eleven games your professional career. So McDavid and Matthews and Eichel and Line, um, they are physical and skill level freaks. He goes on to say, and everyone matures at the different rates. But we look at these players that excel at young ages, and we think that they're the norm. But they're obviously not the norm. They're the exceptions. And so this is really the year where rookie talent sinks down a few levels to actually being like standard rookie talent. We're going to see a lot of these players we would expect to become incredible talents down the line. They're just not incredible talents in terms of output right now. They are exceptionally talented, but they need a lot more development than our McDavid and Matthews and Eichel and Line and several other characters that we've discussed who have been particularly impressive. The rest of Duhatchik's Duhatchik's article uh, discusses a lot about what's going on with the Ducks and how they have an old core and a wealth of rookies coming in. And it's a Good and interesting read, but I kind of wanted to shift it back to the Sabres with an interesting article also from The Athletic that overviews the issues at hand with one of the Sabres rookies who was already mentioned, and that's Casey Middlestat. And this one is from Joe Yurden, and it's chemistry course is part of the education of young Sabres like Casey Middlestat. So before we talk about the article, there's been a lot of chatter, not a lot, some chatter about the idea of sending Casey down Um, to the Rochester Americans this season after kind of a slow start. And I was actually a couple episodes ago, a couple weeks ago, sort of in favor of possibly considering that decision, but I've soured on the idea just watching Casey Middlestat play. Um, I think he's making significant progress in his decision-making. He looks incredible in flashes, Um, but there's a, a reality 
aspect that the numbers aren't too friendly for Casey Middlestat right now. He currently has two goals, three assists for five points in 14 games. Now, I will note that I am recording this part of the episode Sunday morning, and they do play the Rangers tonight. So all of this could change, and our mentality could change if he just absolutely lights it up in this coming game. Um, But I'm trying to get this section out of the way because I've got a little bit of a busy week coming up this week. But the numbers haven't been so favorable for him. But one of the things that Yurden notes um, is the issue of the shuffle going on with that second and third lines, and specifically the number of times that Casey Middlestat has changed line mates as Housley has tried to get things going in that really bottom nine, as we'll talk about later in the episode. So quickly running through the list of Casey Middlestat's line mates game by game this season. Opening night against Boston, Middlestat played with Sabatka and Kyle Ocposo. Next game against the Rangers, he played with Giergensens and Tage Thompson. Next game against Vegas, he played with Remy Eli and Tage Thompson. Next game against Colorado, he played with Larson and Tage Thompson. The next three games against Arizona, Vegas, and San Jose, he's played with Jeff Skinner and Kyle Ocposo. The next three games after that, against LA, Anaheim, and Montreal, he played with Evan Rodriguez and Kyle Ocposo. The next game at the Columbus Blue Jackets, he played with Tage Thompson and Kyle Ocposo. Coming back home against Calgary, he played with Connor Sherry and Sam Reinhart. The next game at Ottawa, he played with Remy Eli and Sam Reinhart. And then in our most recent game at the time of recording, he played with Connor Sherry and Sam Reinhart at home in the matinee against Ottawa. So he has had, counting those up, 10 different sets of line partners this season in 15 games. And there's a quote that's dropped in here that seems to display Casey Middlestad at least publicly having a positive attitude about this. He says, it's been interesting, Middlestad said, of having a wide variety of line mates. It's been nice to learn to play with all different kinds of players and learn to play different ways, different roles. I've enjoyed it. But we're looking at the numbers with Casey Middlestad's output so far in his rookie season, and I just have to wonder and I have to think about It has to be so hard to learn the game at the NHL level when you are constantly trying to learn it with different people. And we did a lot of chatting on the pod this summer about how it was really important to get Rasmus Dahlin playing with the right defensive partner. And in action on the ice, we've seen pretty steadily that Rasmus Dahlin opened up the season playing with McCabe for the first couple of games. And after some defensive partner shifts, it's now Casey Nelson for the last eight games or so. And we've seen that benefit him. Dahlin knows where his partners are going to be, what they're going to be doing, what they're capable of doing. And then you look further up the ice and you see how much middle stat gets shuffled through wing partners. And I have to wonder, like, is it Is it any surprise that he's not lighting it up with them? I mean, contrast this with the um, stat that we're going to talk about later in the episode. And it is that since Jason Pominville, Jeff Skinner, and Jack Eichel started playing together on the top line on October 20th, they are the three highest scorers or three top scorers in the NHL. And we'll talk about that stat later in the episode a little more in depth. What I did is I paired that stat with this idea. 
Since then, on October 20th, Casey Middlestat's lines have changed five times in seven games. The article then gets a little more technical with stats about who Casey seems to play well with and who he doesn't. Um, diving into that a little bit, he spent the most time in the ice 5v5 or in 5v5 situations with Ocposo, Skinner, Rodriguez, and Thompson. Statistically, he seems to have the best success with Erod and Skinner. He was average with Ocposo, and he was pretty awful with Tage Thompson. Uh, Yurden backs that up with Corsi stats that demonstrate how productive he was with Oki, Skinner, and Erod, and how woeful he was with Tage Thompson. I won't go into those specifically, but you can check out the article if you are an athletic subscriber. I think collectively between these two articles, what we see is that this just illustrates that we have a human prospect in Casey Middlestat. We don't have that elite physical maturity um, I think you could pick that out right by just looking at Casey Middlestat, that he's not the freak athlete that we knew McDavid and Eichel and Matthews and Line to be coming in at 17, 18 years old. We know he is so, so talented, and he's shown that in flashes, but he just needs to learn the game, that mental and emotional maturity needs to come through, knowledge of the game and awareness of what he's doing. He's getting a decent amount of ice time for a rookie, and he's averaging over three minutes of power play time per game. He's getting the opportunities, and it's going to come. I think he just needs to find his feet, and I think one of the things that would would help him is if he had some consistency with who he was playing with um, while he was there. So I will tweet out the two links for that uh, those athletic articles if you would like to check them out but that is going to be just about it for our what are you reading section and on part one uh, tweet us in what do you think about these two articles do we think that or am I wrong in thinking that Casey Middlestat's place right now is in the NHL should we be thinking a little more seriously about sending him down? I'm looking When I looked up the stats, one thing I forgot to mention a minute ago is that, that he's getting a decent amount of ice time. That average ice time, according to uh, Fox Sports, is 13 minutes, just over 13 minutes. And that's actually, as I'm thinking about it, maybe not the highest amount of ice time, especially in 5v5 scenarios. But, I mean, you also consider he's, he's not killing penalties in any scenario. He is only very recently on the new look power play line. Um, So I'm wondering if maybe he would benefit from going down. Personally, I think the better idea would be to just get him a consistent set of line mates in the NHL level and continue to give him those opportunities. But tweet us in. Let us know what you think. We'll talk about it in the next episode. Join us in part two, where we will be recapping our last four outings from this past week. We'll see you guys in a second. All right, guys, welcome back to part two, where we're going to be reviewing the last week and a half of Buffalo Sabres games and their outings, and we will start with last Tuesday when the Calgary Flames came to town. They were coming to town after beating the Leafs in Toronto the night before, so it was a bit of an opportunity for the Sabres catching them on the tail end of a back-to-back. No significant lineup changes other than the usual shuffling of Tage Thompson into the lineup at the expense of Vladimir Sabadka 
and I'm sorry, not Vladimir Sabatka at the expense of Remy Eli. And due to a minor Jake McCabe injury, we did see our first outing of Rasmus Dahlin and Rasmus Ristolainen on the top pairing while Beaulieu came in to pair with Casey Nelson. Jumping right off to the bat, Beaulieu took a tripping penalty a few minutes into the game, and I remember when they lined up, just looking at their power play unit, just thinking, wow, this could be a long night for the Sabres. This is an incredibly skillful-looking group of guys. You've got Goudreau, Kachuk, Monahan, who's pretty perennially underrated. Lindholm is new to the team this year, and Giordano is always a really strong presence from the back end. And while we were pretty worried about that power play unit, the Sabres were actually, throughout the game, able to kill them successfully five times in the game. This first one was a bit frantic early on, but they were able to successfully kill Middle section of the period kind of suggested that the Flames had the upper hand there. They didn't look particularly great, but if you had to pick the team who had played the night before and was playing on the back end of a back-to-back, I don't know that you necessarily would have picked the Flames. Uh, the, The Sabres looked kind of a little flat and dead at this one. There's another power play for the Flames, 8-13 into the period, or with 8-13 remaining in the period. Sherry took a slashing call. Um, after just a little frantic moment of defending. Another good kill. This one had almost no time in the zone for the Flames. Sabres took a chance to take some momentum, and they had some good chances. They got a couple lucky bounces. The puck actually flipped off one of the Flames defenders on the back end. It falls to Pominville, who feeds Eichel on the left, and he just wrists one over Riddich's far shoulder. He had had... This is Eichel, by the way. Eichel had had seven points in his last five games going into this one, so on a bit of a point stretch, but he was totally dry in goals in the meantime. This was his first goal in nine games, going all the way back to the the third game of the season against the Vegas Golden Knights. And so while pretty prolific in points over that stretch, total goal drought. And so this was nice to see him get off the mark. Two minutes later, Middlestat battled through some rough play in front, drew a holding penalty or holding the stick penalty. It was the usual crew out for the power play with just over two minutes left. They had some productivity, but were a little disjointed. Darlene in particular kind of had trouble finding Eichel for the one-timer, and it was just a, a good relief to end the period. The Flames had looked largely better, but the goal allows the Sabres back into the game, puts them on top, and they were able to end with a pretty solid power play. Second period, early on, there was a bit of a scrum in front of the net, and Hutton just makes an incredible stick save on Lindholm. It was kind of reminiscent of that Holtby save in the Stanley Cup Finals against the Vegas Golden Knights, where he just fell back and threw his stick on the goal line to save it. The puck actually did end up in the net, um, due to a little bit of bumping from Scandella and Goudreau, and the whistle had gone before the puck had gone into the net. And Goudreau was obviously, rightfully, rather furious. It was reviewed, and the call went all the way to the review team in Toronto, but it was upheld, which ultimately was the right call in that the whistle had blown the play dead, but Hutton didn't have it covered, and the whistle shouldn't have been blown in the first place. So a bit of a controversial one, one for the Flames to definitely be grumpy about. 
and it was followed by some just shaky moments on the defensive end. The Sabres were eventually able to shift the pressure, but the Flames are still generating. Carter Hutton was a hero on several occasions. They had to kill another penalty. It was a little bit of a BS one. Sherry burst through the zone and somehow was called for a tripping penalty for tripping the Calgary Flames defenseman who was behind him. And But the Sabres were able to successfully kill that one. Eichel went into the box with a minute left in the period. It was an elbowing call. It was soft. He was in the corner trying to make some room for himself as the puck was up in the air. Soft, but it was clear. He did put his elbow on the guy's face. Sabres do see out the period, killing this one, and they are halfway on their way to their fourth straight kill. Good end to the period, but equally shaky. They spent a lot of time in this middle stanza just chasing an elusive second goal while also barely holding off an equalizer. Entertaining period on the whole. Shots are 27-22 in favor of Calgary. Take it into the third period, which was surprisingly physical as the Sabres kill off that second half of that power play. Hutton lost his helmet at one point when the net got crashed. Kyle Ocposo ended someone on the boards. Bogosian, like, threw someone over Hutton in a move that kind of resembled, like, that table-topping move that used to play in recess in middle school. But eventually the period kind of settled in. And honestly, it was really just kind of back and forth with no real chances for a while. It was just a little scrappy. <laughs> one, one moment of note was that there was a period of time where on the broadcast angle – you saw Bogosian come from the left-hand side into the offensive zone, and all of a sudden, Flames rookie Dylan Dube just disappears. And it was called a charging penalty, and you saw the other angles, and it actually didn't look that bad from the other angles, but the broadcast angle is just hilarious because Bogosian is just coming in, and all of a sudden, Dube is just gone. But it's a charging penalty, and not the best time to take it with about 10 minutes remaining, but they kill it for a successful fifth penalty kill of the game. 11 minutes in to this period, however, and the Sabres have not taken a shot on goal. They do finally get one through Tage Thompson with 7 minutes and 26 seconds left. Took them long enough. Calgary cranked it to another gear later on. Hutton's still really strong. The defense is standing pretty strong. Calgary pulls with two minutes left, and with their 36th shot of the game, Monahan feeds it in, and Kachuk tips it over Carter Hutton with just about a minute left in the period. 1-1. Sabres do try to battle back with that one minute remaining. They get a few pucks to the net, and Sabatka is tripped at the horn, which means the Sabres will start overtime on the power play which was pretty lifeless. Sherry got a chance on the doorstep as Darlene fed it in. They can't score. The Flames kill it. About three minutes into overtime, Risto, Sam, and Eichel broke from the defensive end, and it was just, I remember watching them come across the zone thinking, you're too slow, you're too slow, you're too slow. Risto took it into the corner and got pinned on the boards. They turn it over, Flames break, it ends up with Eichel being the only defensive player in the back end against Goudreau. Goudreau plays a 2-1 with the other guy he's up with, and he scores. Overtime loss, which just with how close they were to seeing off a shaky win, maybe even a win that they didn't deserve, but to be one nothing up with a minute left, and maybe even more criminally, to have a man advantage on the power play in overtime and not capitalize is pretty criminal 
for this team. Especially you look the more you look into the game, the more it gets increasingly frustrating. This was a team on a back to back, and they couldn't take it take it to them. Uh, Jack Eichel said it pretty perfectly after the game. He said they outplayed us. We didn't deserve to win that game. We sat back a little too much. There wasn't enough compete, enough fire. I thought we were relying on our goalie too much, and I think that pretty much sums up how the game went. They took that lack of a performance against a Canadian team and took that to another Canadian team when they traveled to Ottawa on Thursday night. And Ottawa went into this one with a a few interesting stats. Um, They were second to last in shots faced, facing an average of 37.9 shots per game. They were third last in their penalty kill with a 69.4 percentage of killing. And then interestingly enough, they came into this game with the ninth best power play at 25.8%. So an interesting up and down season that the Ottawa Senators had been having. One aspect of this game that was absolutely phenomenal was that it was Jason Pominville's thousandth game. He um, had a great night. As we'll talk about, the Sabres did have to kill a six, uh, kill a penalty three minutes in. They were successful for their sixth straight. They then had another one five minutes in. Scandella on a holding call. The Sabres are unable to get to seven straight as Ryan Dezingle is given just way too much room in front, way too much time in front to whack at Hutton's pad from the corner of the net. Down one nothing, seven minutes in. By halfway through the period, the Sabres are being outshot 10-2. to They do get a chance to turn it around with a power play 13 minutes in. Weidman on a delay a game call. Good first shift from the A-team. Surprisingly, really good shift from Pominville, Sherry, Ristolainen, Akposo, and Patrick Berglund, of all people. Did look good for a second, but the Senators are able to successfully kill. And the Sabres turned it around after that. They were much stronger after their power play. Ristolainen hit the post. I was very disappointed to hear that we did not get a Dan Dunleavy doink. But momentum shifts back towards the Sens as they take possession later in the period. There was a period of time where the second line of Sherry, Sabatka, and Akposo were out in the defensive end for almost three minutes. The Sabres could not establish possession and get out of there. It seemed like while the Sabres had climbed their way back into it, they had clawed back in just to give possession back up. Period does end 12-12, but overall the morale was pretty low in this one. It was just a flat start against a team that had been struggling in a lot of especially defensive capacities. Second period started horribly. DeMello flipped it to the wall. It hits the back wall, goes into Hutton's pad as he's sliding back into the net, and the puck goes in the net. Team swapped a couple power plays, Eichel to the box for one, DeMello in the box for another. Nothing came of that, but ultimately, if you want one aspect to sum up this period, the Sabres just looked slow. And Akposo goes to the box, and our penalty guild gets a chance to like pad the stats a little bit, but they don't. The Sens re-enter the zone after a clearance, and everybody is just chasing. And you, you got the sense that nobody really knew where they were supposed to be. By the end of this play, the puck is in the back of the net because Colin White ends up totally unmarked in the slot. But in the meantime, McCabe had gone around one corner of the net and stripped Carter Hutton of his stick, and Risto had backed into Hutton's face, so he's completely unable to make a play. Neither of those defensemen is in a position position to mark Colin White, and he just flips it, 
into an open net. 3-0. Period ends with quite a bit to do. They do start off doing what they have to do, though, in the third period. Eichel puts it to the front of the net with less than a minute in. Pominville taps it in to commemorate his 1,000th game, 3-1. On the power play, Risto gets it in the point, flings it in. Skinner tips it, and it's 3-2. Stone goes to the box to delay a game with 12.40 left. Great opportunity, some pucks to the net, no product. Sabres finally take the momentum, are out shooting on the period 14-4, and it's showing on the ice and the scoreboard. When the Sens try to come back the other way, Hutton blanks uh, LaJoy, and Bogo bails him out on the rebound. Just a critical play. They're still in it. They get their chance. Skinner gets all alone in front and dangles but cannot beat Anderson. Palmer and him sort of like got in each other's way on the offensive end. It looks like they were both trying to play the same puck. Sabres pull with two minutes left. Chabot flipped it at one point and hits the uh, hits the post with 33 seconds left. Another nail-biter, and then Stone wins a knockdown, flips it to Bobby Ryan, and he finishes it. 4-2, three losses in a row, and because two of those losses were overtime losses, the point streak is over. Shots were in favor of the Sabres this game, but there's something we've got to talk about after this game. This was slightly rectified after the Ottawa team or Ottawa came to town and the Sabres demolished them. We'll talk about it in a second, but the problem still remains. Let's talk about secondary scoring, and we'll go through goals this season at that point. So this is two games ago at this point as in, in your time of listening. At this point in the season, Eichel, four goals. Skinner, six goals. Pominville, five goals. Akposo, three goals. Sherry, three goals. Sabaka, one goal. Evan Rodriguez, zero goals. Patrick Berglund, one goal. Johan Larson, zero goals. Remy Eli, zero goals. Zemgis Giergensens, zero goals. Tage Thompson, zero goals. And I think that that is kind of the age-old problem with the Sabres the last few seasons is that they are able to put up an impressive top line. They're able to put out some pretty solid puck-playing defensemen. The secondary scoring in this team, in this situation, has just been abysmal. And I think Realistically, for the immediate aspect of that Ryan O'Reilly trade, that the goal was supposed to be to flip our secondary scoring, bringing in a, a young guy like Tage Thompson, but also established veterans who can be a goal presence like Sabaka and Berglund, not happening so far. And clearly illustrating this, just the last few games, it's something, one, one issue with the Sabres early on that's been rectified is that when they've lost, they haven't been getting blown out. That was the problem they were having early in the season is that they were either fighting for hard-fought wins or they were getting blown out. Now the problem is, while they're able to stay in games, if that top line's not getting it done, the rest of the team certainly isn't, a problem that certainly needs to be addressed. They looked to address it at the 2 p.m. matinee against Ottawa, and thankfully I was really lucky. My buddy and I were able to attend this game. We wanted to go and see the ceremony for Pominville for his uh, thousandth game. This was now his thousand and first game, thousand and oneth, thousand and first, something like that. His one thousand and oneth game, we will call it. And in this one, we see pretty standard lineup. Uh, second line of Sherry Middlestat, Reinhardt, 
who is it that came into this one? Oh, Evan Rodriguez came into this one after missing a few games from the birth of his child. Congratulations to him on the way. There was a Pominville commemoration beforehand that was half cute, half really awkward. Um, the, his wife and his kids and his parents were there. The alternate captains in Akposo and Bogosian and Eichel came out and presented flowers. He was given a sword by the Sabres. Then there was like this awkward moment with Terry Pagula where he just tried to recreate the drafting moment. And he actually said, I want to recreate a moment here. And he says, with the 55th pick of the 2001 NHL draft, the Buffalo Sabres select Jason Pominville. And I think in his mind, he pictured it being just a very sentimental moment, but it really just kind of fell kind of flat and the crowd was just kind of looking around like, well, okay. But ultimately at the end of the day, it was a really nice event to start the game. Uh, sorry, Pominville was given like an actual saber, like a sword by the Pagulas, flowers, painting, unveiling, great little start. Game starts off. Eichel got an early chance in the breakaway, but Craig Anderson is able to make the save. Five minutes in, Casey Nelson enters the zone centrally. He flips it to Ocposo, and he fires it past Anderson from well out, like almost past the far circle. And from my seat and on the replay, I watch that one, and I think, you know what, Anderson, I think you should have had that one, but it's one nothing. A minute later, the top line had a bit of a scramble to win a faceoff in the offensive zone. Eichel ends up with it, wrists it to the net. It dribbles through and ends up going in. Skinner makes sure for his seventh of the season. 15 minutes into this one, Pominville fan, or like fans on an Eichel square pass. It comes back to Eichel. He feeds, feeds Skinner, who whacks it off the post. It hits Anderson in the back of the head. It falls to Pominville, who commemorates his 1,001th game. 1,001st. God. And Ottawa pull Craig Anderson, who was so good two days before stopping the Sabres resurgence and just not up for it today. 3-0. Into the second period, Sherry got a shot on the power play and McKenna Gate made such a good save that it actually fooled the goal horn. Like he was all alone out in front, snaps one from close in, and McKenna makes a save. The goal horn goes off, the crowd celebrates, and it's over. Or it's not in the net. The Sabres do like this play, um, power play opportunity where they play it from wide to down below the goal line, and then they put it out front to a, for a one-timer from a lefty, either Sherry or Skinner, all in like a tic-tac-toe play. And a minute later, the Sabres make the exact same play with a backhand pass coming from Reinhardt below the goal line, and it's Skinner this time for his second of the game, and this time they do score, and the goal horn goes off. Similar move about a minute later. It's Berglund to Giergensen's this time. He's wide open coming in. 5 nothing. Sens do get one from a McCormick, uh, as McCormick scores from a Bodker feed, but the Sabres respond a minute later. Eichel puts it to the front. Palmer taps it home out of the air. 6-1, second of the game for Pominville. Two minutes later, Connor Sherry is set free. He snipes the far corner. 7-1. Allmark Stone Stone on a breakaway. I actually typed that and did not even notice how awkward that sounds. Um, Allmark stops Stone on a breakaway with a great save. Palmer gets a chance for the hat trick on the doorstep. They were trying to set him up late in the game, but he just can't lift it over the pad. 
Early in the third period, he gets almost an identical chance but couldn't quite convert. Sabres do get a bit of an ugly one as all the Swedes. Risto, Berglund, Lar- Risto's not a Swede. I don't know why I typed that. A couple of Swedes and a Finn are all just kind of in a nasty scrum in front of the net. Falls to Berglund. He scores his second of the season. Six minutes left. Sherry drops one for Casey Middlestat, who probably, if you're watching the highlights, has the best individual shot of the game. And it's 9-2 for his second of the season. Chabot flips it to CeCe for a late tip in the game. 9-2 final. Honestly, just such a great game and an atmosphere. Um, It does make it increasingly frustrating that they couldn't do that two days before and place themselves firmly into a playoff position or a playoff conversation. They're still kind of falling around with the Boston, Ottawa, Montreal crew. It would have been nice to be in a, you know, four points ahead of Ottawa at this point. Um, But a really fun, entertaining game. We were handed out... uh, signs that I'm currently sitting under it says welcome to Pominville population 1000 and especially when he scored that first goal and you looked around the stadium and thousands of Pominville signs were in the air just such a cool authentic beautiful experience to see just such a hard-working intelligent player who I think really embodies 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 what you want an athlete to be nowadays. He's well-spoken, he's humble, he's hardworking, he's a family-dedicated man, and there's there, there is no shortage of plaudits you can say or you can give to Jason Pominville. Really, the only negative from this game is that at some point in the second period, Darlene took a shot to the ankle. He did not return for the second or the third period, Housley said afterwards that he didn't think it was serious, and he ended up playing against the Rangers, as we'll talk about. So that wasn't necessarily the biggest deal in the world. But he did miss about the second half of this game. The stat that everybody wanted to talk about after this one is the one that the Sabres uh, PR was tweeting out. And it's awesome, but it's also illustrative of the problem we were talking about after the previous Ottawa game. And here's the stat. Since they began playing together on October 20th, Jeff Skinner with eight goals and five assists, Jason Pominville with seven goals and six assists, and Jack Eichel with one goal and 11 assists are the three top scorers in the NHL, which is awesome to see a top line clicking to that extent that all three players end up at the top of an NHL scoring table in a certain period of time, but show me where all of the other Sabres are. That's the problem. While it's awesome that this line has clicked, other lines have continued to just struggle to the nth degree. You look at Casey Middlestat and his inability to put up points. You look at a guy like Evan Rodriguez, who's an incredibly talented player, and his inability to put up points. Some of those lines that are like a little more grafty, your Berglund, uh, Sabatka, Larson line, those lines are really able to come to life when other things are going well. But we haven't been able to rely on a line like that to win a game yet this season. So awesome stat, definitely something worth celebrating, but also illustrative of a a problem at hand for the Buffalo Sabres this season. Sabres round off this week. They go to a back-to-back Sunday night against the Rangers at Madison Square Garden. Darlene was declared a game-time decision, and it was literally a game-time decision. Uh, Darlene and Beaulieu both skated in the warm-ups. Darlene is eventually selected. He pairs with Casey Nelson. 
The first period was absolutely totally dominant by the Sabres. Uh, by the end of this one, they were out shooting the Rangers 15-5. to Closest scoring, a chance, scoring chance was just the closest save. Almost a goal from Nelson. His shot hits Lundqvist. It dribbles through, but Lundqvist is able to scramble backwards and grab it off the line. There was also a dicey moment this period where Jeff Skinner went down after a collision holding his knee, and everybody in the Sabres franchise was just holding his breath. But thankfully, he got up, was able to continue with the game. First period, total dominance. Sabres are unable to capitalize and beat Lundqvist. A minute into the second period, Pionk gets a shot from the circle. It hits McCabe's arm, changes direction, and it goes right past Hutton. 19 seconds later, VC ends up in the slot, and none of Sherry, Reinhardt, or Casey Middlestat are prepared to check him. Casey Nelson has like a limited effort to pinch off his space. He sends it past Carter Hutton, 2 nothing in under a minute, 2 nothing in under 30 seconds. Just after that, Zabanajad gets on a breakaway and comes centimeters from making it 3 nothing. He puts it past Hutton, it hits the post and hits the goal line, but stays out somehow defying physics. The lights actually went up on this one and the crowd cheers, but the refs rightfully wave play on. Here's something to think about. If that went in, in about a two-minute span, that's three goals over um, Carter Hutton's glove side shoulder and I'm starting to wonder as I'm thinking back to results in which Carter Hutton lets up a chunk of goals is that something that he's targeted on and I'd be interested to know where Carter Hutton is getting scored on because it was very clear in that instance that that was a bit of a weak spot for at least that two minutes and I'm interested to see what his other ability level is like when he's facing similar shots to that point. Berglund did grab a tripping call seven minutes in. Eichel is able to hit the post. Zuccarello puts it on the line and blocks another Eichel blast with his body, but that was about it. Rangers were able to kill. Right as they kill, they trip Evan Rodriguez, but the Sabres were pretty lifeless on that next power play. Two minutes left in the period. Lundqvist had a bit of a rough one where he chased the puck around the side of the net and got tangled with Darlene. And there was some rough contact with his shoulder and head. His head took kind of a nasty angle on the contact, but he was checked out and allowed to stay on. He sees out the period. Sabres are out shooting 30 to 15 in this one. Lots of chances. Lundqvist is making great saves. Hutton's also making great saves, but unfortunately a couple less than Lundqvist was. Into the third period, the Sabres get a gift. Lundqvist has a chance to stop the play more than once. The puck goes behind the net, and he fans on it. He comes back out front, and the puck comes to him, and he pushes it out very subtly right to Connor Sherry, who is able to force it home under a sprawling Lundqvist as Connor Sherry is flailing at it. Puck goes in, it's 2-1, and Lundqvist just looks to the sky in agony. Definitely not a proud moment for him. And that was about it. Uh, the last few minutes featured a lot of really sloppy play and inability to establish possession, a lot of really frustrating turnovers, and the Rangers sank an empty netter, and the roller coaster of the season continues. One step forward, one step back. Sabres took 40 shots at this one, and they played well for larger periods of this game, but they hit a team that was able to be annoying and get sticks in passing lanes, and most importantly, they ran into a good goaltender who was hot, and that's kind of just how it goes. But there are still some issues remain, issues remaining Sorry, with secondary scoring, 
issues with the man advantage. The Sabres went 0 for 4 on this one. So disappointing end to the week. Um, but some positives to take away and just how how well they played, unfortunately, didn't round out in success. Stock up, stock down before we round out part two. Um, stock up, I've, I've got to put Bogosian out there. I don't have any numbers to back this up, but he just looks impressive. He looks good. He looks solid. He's hitting hard. He's moving well. I find it a rare occasion that we have to talk about him with a defensive lapse, and he's just a lot of fun to watch play. And after the seasons that he's had since he's gotten to Buffalo, we haven't seen a whole lot of that because he hasn't been on the ice. When he's on the ice, he's he can change the way that the Sabres play. He has that physical aspect of the game. He ended an Ottawa Senator or sorry, a Calgary Flame at one point. He's just he brings a new level to this team. I also just have a soft spot for those old warriors who don't wear the visor on their helmet and are grandfathered into the claws. Just good on him. He's looked very good uh, since coming back from his, his long injury stretch to start this season. We've also got to talk about Jason Pominville. Uh, we talked about the stat released. We talk about how successful he's getting, how he's how successful he's been. He's got seven goals, six assists since October 20th, and it's just going for him right now. His intelligence and his movement so complements the shiftiness of Skinner and the playmaking and speed of Eichel. It's just great to see from a guy celebrating his thousandth game. Stock down, guys that are struggling a little bit. I think we got to talk about Sam Reinhart. He is falling down the lines. He's getting some opportunities from the power play, but it's not always clicking in an opportunity where he can capitalize. And he's sitting on one goal, seven assists for the season. And we have talked about how that is actually his hottest start to an NHL season, which is kind of emblematic of the slow starts that he usually has. But I just look at this and I think, dude, you got your bridge deal. Like, this is your show me deal. And right now, we're not really seeing him show anything at this time. The assists are coming in. Every now and then, he has a flash of good play. But if he wants to be considered in the caliber of other number two overall picks from the last few years, I think we need to see another level from Sam Reinhart. We need to see a step forward. Not trying to be too critical of him. There's plenty of time. He's still a young player. We know what he's capable of, and I think that's what's the most frustrating about how he's playing right now is we're not seeing it at the moment. The other guy I've got pegged down here is Rasmus Ristolainen, and to be perfectly honest, he's just not contributing enough for the minutes that he's averaging. He's not a bad player, but he's also not a top-line player, and I think we are really seeing that as we are seeing what an 18-year-old Rasmus Dahlin can do compared to what a now, what, fifth year in the league Rasmus Ristolainen is capable of doing. We see now just what an inferior skater Rasmus Ristolainen is, and he's not bad. He's a pretty good skater, but we see what a grade-A skater can do from the defensive end and what a grade-A playmaker can do from the defensive end, particularly eating up those first line power play minutes, Ristolainen has really been struggling to connect with the two other guys who are sitting back, usually Eichel looking for those one-timers or uh, Kyle Ocposo off to his right. He's really struggling with getting the passes to where they need to be, and it's not clicking for him right now. And even at his absolute best, Rasmus Dahlin is way better. And I think it is time for us, as Dahlin is starting to 
feel things out and get his feet underneath him in the league, I think it's time for us to start seeing Rasmus Dahlin eat up some more top-line-like minutes. Rasmus Ristolainen is a great player. He's a great second-line defenseman. I think it's time to leave Rasmus Ristolainen, the top-line defenseman, behind. That's it for part two. Join us in part three, where we'll be previewing the Sabres' next outings, talking about what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and opening up our mailbag with questions from your fellow listeners. We'll see you guys in a second. All right, welcome to part three, where we're going to be talking about the road ahead, what's going on down the road in Rochester, around town in the league, and opening up our mailbag with questions from your fellow listeners. Coming up next for the Buffalo Sabres, we are traveling to Montreal on Thursday night. And Montreal continues to impress and surprise around the league. A lot of them, including your uh, lovely host here, had written them off after trading Pacioretty and Galchenyuk and with Shea Weber going down injured. But they are certainly still in a playoff contending conversation 13 games in. They're um, they're hovering right around where the Buffalo Sabres are, along with the Bruins and Toronto and really everyone not named Tampa in the division, who we'll talk about in a second. They don't have a lot of lights out shooters or far and away all out prospect talented players but they are just a hard working fast team that can murder you in transition and they've got Carey Price camping out in the back particularly Thomas Tatar has been great for them so far well the last time that we talked about previewing um, a Montreal Canadiens game he was the point leader at the time Max Domi who has been incredible for them, has passed him since then. He's got 13 points on the season, and got to say, good on him, because a lot of people around the league kind of wrote him off coming in with that trade for Alex Galchenyuk, and I think a, a big part of that was that a lot of Habs fans were very disappointed to be losing Gelch, and Max Domi, while he had been pretty good, hasn't really... Um, lit lit up the league in the last couple of seasons, but he's he's come in, he's playing incredibly well. He gave the Sabers all kinds of trouble in that last game at home. I he's he's been really good. Um, Thirteen points on the season, filling in that number two center slash winger role really well. The last time out, we had that hard-fought 4-3 win that the Sabres won with a late power play goal from Ocposo. That was a a challenging game for the Sabres because even though their possession stats were quite dominant against the Canadians, Montreal made it a really challenging affair. They were exactly what Montreal is this season. They were steady enough at the back and murderous in their transition and what they could do when they recovered the puck. So it's going to be a really tricky game for the Sabres. They're going to have to be on their game. They're going to have to be technically brilliant. It's a team that you can't make mistakes with because they can punish you. After that, the Sabres will return back home for a home matinee against the Canucks. And this will be such an exciting game because it's all about the young kids this season for the Canucks. Um, 
They we've already talked about this episode about Elias Peterson in our what are you reading section. He's got 15 points in nine games. But Brock Besser with 11 points and Bo Horvat with 11 points have also been great young contributors as well. They've got a couple other good things going for them. They, interestingly enough, have the ninth best penalty kill in the league at an 82%. And they're currently sitting right near the top of the Pacific Division with 18 points from 15 games. And that is just way above where a lot of folks would have put them thus far in the season. I think the common consensus was that, all right, they they have a very bright future ahead of them. You look at that rookie talent, you can't think any other way. But really, their only significant off-season addition, as far as I can tell looking at this list, their only significant off-season addition was Jay Beagle, whom they signed to kind of be their like number one center but he was kind of the third-line or fourth-line center for the Washington Capitals and isn't really the guy that you pay to be your number one center in this league. And he's also currently injured. And so what they're doing right now is really incredible, and hopefully for them, long may it continue. It's an, it's awesome to see guys like Elias Pettersson and an American like Brock Besser being a young talent lighting up the league like this. One thing they are kind of battling at the moment is that they do have a ton of guys on the uh, injured reserve right now. Um, Alex Edler, Chris Tanev, Brandon Sutter, uh, Sven Bateshi, Betshi, I can't say that one, Jay Beagle, and Anders Nielsen, if you remember him from a couple seasons ago, are all on the IR, but they're still going strong, and I think this will be um, a challenging game for the Sabres, but also one of particular excitement it's just great to watch a young team playing well and playing fun so i'm really excited to watch that game closing out next week they will have a home tuesday night outing to the lightning and the lightning there are no surprises here they are the big gun in the division and no one is really surprised to see them firmly at the top of the division standings with 19 points in 13 games they are certainly a little grumpy this season after losing to the Capitals in Game 7 in the playoffs last year. And last year was kind of said to be Tampa's year, and for them to be to go out in that manner, um, especially after the way that they armed up at the deadline with guys like Ryan McDonough and JT Miller, it was definitely a disappointing season for them. And it just wasn't to be their year, but they are just stacked at the moment with a team featuring... Old names that we know, like Stamkos, Kucherov, Tyler Johnson, Victor Hedman, and that list goes on. But it's also supplemented with younger bodies like Braden Point, who's been incredible, Mikhail Sergachev, who's been incredible, and are also playing really well this season as they go. They're just a, a wagon of great talent, and one of the most impressive parts is that they're a wagon of great talent on great deals. And this is a team that is just bought into the idea of collective success. Like you look at their contracts down the line, Steven Stamkos is on 8.5 for many, many years. That's going to be a great deal in a couple of years. When you look at the way that, you know, your top number one centers are getting paid now, 10, 11, 12, 8.5 for Stamkos on a long-term contract, that's going to be a great deal. Hedman is just under eight for seven more years. That's a great deal. 
JT Miller was signed for 5.25 for five years. That's a great deal. Tyler Johnson on five for six years. That's a, a pretty good deal. But like the one that really just sells it is Kucherov is on 4.7 for this year. And then that contract increases to 9.5 for seven years. Now, that is a lot of money after this year. But think about it this way. He took a discount for this year to stay with this team, make sure the rest of the players around this team could stay with this team. How many 40 goal scorers do you know who would take a dime less than what they're worth? Like looking, looking at what he was willing to do just perfectly illustrates like this is a team that is bought in to having this success is that when a management can sit down with a player and say like, look, look, Cooch, we, we, we've got a bunch of money clearing up next year and we can pay you what you're worth next year. We just can't do it right now. Could you please accept a contract worth half of what you are worth? And for him to say, yes, like, look at that, just collective mentality coming in, coming into that and just the willing to make those sacrifices for the idea of success. Contrast that with what's going on with Toronto, how they can't get William Nylander to come to the table and sign a contract and get everybody on the same page going forward. I think just off the ice, you've got everybody in just a really great team mentality. On the ice, um, quick little updates about what's going on with them. Braden Point is their current scoring leader. He's got seven goals, eight assists for 15 points on the season. Someone we may or may not see is Victor Hedman. He sat out this weekend's games with a head injury that kind of has conflicting reports. One moment you'll read something that says it's not that serious. Other reports will come in saying that it's a bigger deal than it's reported, and then others will come back saying that those reports are actually bogus and it's nothing of note. He is listed on the injury reserve right now. I think it's, at this point, totally unknown whether we will see him next Tuesday. We'll see how things are going. They're not missing him too much. I mean, remember, they've they've added uh, McDonough. They've got Sergachev playing really well. I mean... It's kind of interesting that a team can miss a player like Victor Hedman and really not miss him with the product on the ice, but we don't know whether or not we will see him. Whether or not we see him, the Sabres will have enough problems to deal with on the ice with that game. Moving on to down the road, there is some good news for the Amherst all around, and one of those is that Sean Malone returned to practice on this most recent Thursday. He was then officially assigned to the Rochester Americans on Tuesday. He's been out since preseason with a knee injury, which was just really unfortunate because we were we were really hoping that he would be in the conversation for battling for one of those bottom six roles or maybe a bottom six center role with the Sabres. And now that He's coming back. Hopefully, we can see him pick up where he left off last season. Uh, The Harvard product just finished really, really strongly last season. So it was really unfortunate to see things get off to this kind of start for him this season. So good news in that regard that he has returned to practice. Victor Olofsson, the the plaudits continue for him after being awarded AHL Player of the Week. He was awarded AHL Player of the Month for his 15 points in 10 games. And a lot of people were clamoring for him to get called up, especially in the light of the secondary scoring issues that we've talked about this season and a couple of bad defeats that we've seen this season. But ultimately, I'm going to argue that it is just not the time. 
And there are a couple stats that I have to present that will maybe illustrate that. Number one, the dude has played 12 games on ice this size and has never played an NHL game. And so he is still learning. He's still getting opportunities to play a lot of ice time. While his scoring stats are impressive, a huge percentage of his points have come on a man advantage. Nine of his 15 points are on the power play. And his point totals have struggled along with the Amherst power play, which is currently on a 16 straight power play drought. Um, they haven't scored in 16 straight. And in that time period, Victor Olofsson's points have also taken a small drop. He's still scoring. He's still contributing. I watched him score a goal on Friday night in a game we'll chat about in a second. But it's it's slowed down with the power play. He just needs time to learn the American-sized ice and get ice time. He's going to get his chance, and he's going to get his chance this season, I am certain. But it doesn't have to happen right now. In terms of how things are going for them recently, they had a loss at home and then a victory away to the Hershey Bears that leaves them, I believe, 9-3-1 on the season, maybe 8-3-1. Let me look that up very quickly. While I'm looking that up, I will tell you that the Amherst play in Buffalo this Wednesday at the KeyBank Center at 7 p.m. against the Cleveland Monsters. Um... It's a great, great little event. The tickets are super cheap. Highly recommend that you go and attend and see the Amherst. They're, they're a great time this season. They're a great show. It would be great for you guys to see Victor Olofsson and Lawrence Pilot out there. And hang on one sec. I am looking up right now and finding that the... I don't know why I'm putting so much focus on being this specific right now, but the Amherst are... 8-3-1 and one in the season. I don't know why it was so important that I was absolutely so correct on that, but now you know. Quick news around town that we're going to keep things a little short on just because we've got a bit of a long episode. Um, number one, Jonathan Quick, as things get worse and worse for the LA Kings, is listed as out indefinitely with an injury. And I think if the LA Kings had any hope of what they were going to be this season or what they were going to be able to contend with this season it might end with Jonathan Quick going down. Uh, a good world-class goalie can cover up a lot of cracks. We've seen that with a lot of teams around the league. When Bobrovsky's on, Columbus is incredible. When he's not, they're horrible. When Carey Price is on, the Habs can be contenders. When he's not, they're horrible. And so things might be dying right here um, with Jonathan Quick for the LA Kings. And that's probably further personified by the Kings' decision to make a coaching staff change. The Kings head coach, John Stevens, was removed from his position on Sunday. He's replaced on an interim basis by Willie Desjardins, who's a former Canucks coach. The Kings have lost seven out of their last nine, and they're bottom of their division. The timing is a little interesting because the Kings actually won Saturday night, but Stevens was still fired Sunday. Bob McKenzie tweeted out that reports seem to indicate that the decision was made after a loss to Philly on Thursday night. Weird timing, but they got to do what they're going to do. It was followed up by another coaching change on Tuesday. The Chicago Blackhawks announced that they were parting company with Joel Quenneville, which kind of rocked the hockey world. He is the second most winning coach in hockey history, and he won three Stanley Cups in a six-year span. So this is kind of a big deal. 
He is kind of the face of a Blackhawks team that was off to a bit of an indifferent start after a campaign that saw them miss the playoffs. So I feel like this was just administration feeling like someone's head had to roll for this. He's an incredibly successful coach, incredibly successful with the Blackhawks. I think they just need a change, and you you can't fire the players. You can't turn over players of that magnitude that quickly. So probably looking for someone else to get something more out of this team. A lot of speculation now about where he's going to end up, and I, I saw some things on, on Twitter that uh, Sabres Twitter specifically that, you know, we, we should fire Housley right now and get Joel in. And while I would love to have a coach of that caliber at the Buffalo Sabres, that's a little too harsh on Phil at this point. I think we, we need to be sticking it out with Phil. This team at its current state is not underachieving. And we were expecting the Sabres to be better this season. They are better this season. This is not a time where you can fire a franchise club legend in Phil Housley and replace him just because a better coach became available. That's my current take on it. I don't. I thought the 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 thoughts that we should get rid of him were a little ridiculous. Tell me what you think. Other item that is of note, but that I will just not entertain for very long or in much detail here, is that Evander Kane is in the news for an event that is tabloid worthy that you you can google on your own i'm not gonna talk about the the nature of it on on this show or on this episode but he is back in the news for some rough things um and you i think as sabers fans we can just take a small bit of comfort in just thank goodness this guy isn't our problem anymore. I mean, just the number of times he was in the news for something that he shouldn't have been doing or some treating someone in a way that he shouldn't have been treating them, and we'll just leave it as vaguely as that. You can look up the details. This this is a guy I'm, I'm so glad I don't have to watch put on a jersey of a team that I support. Um, glad he's gone. Glad he's there now, and we can... We can not worry about him for, for, for ever again, hopefully. Um, but check out the news if you're interested with what he's involved in right now. Moving on to our mailbag. Remember, you can check us out at ICGAW, I-C-G-A-W, on Twitter. And you can also find us at ICGAWpod at gmail.com. Send in your questions. We'd love to chat about them on the show. This one comes from Jordan DeShane on Twitter. And he tweeted in or sent me a direct message to say, it would be cool to discuss other Skinner-type moves we could make, prying away a good player that a team will be unwilling or unable to bring back. I'd love Yanni Gord or Jacob Truba. And I think this is, this is a hard question to answer, first of all, because knowing how to find a Skinner-type move I think is what makes you an incredible NHL GM. I mean, same thing goes with the the Connor Sherry move. I feel like anything I am personally able to identify with my just powers of the internet is also going to be easily identifiable by other management groups. And so it might not be as good of a deal if 
all of the management groups are aware that a player is available and then a, a market is generated for that player. And so these will be some ideas that I think teams will be looking at. But if we know about them, then I think it, we can say pretty confidently that they're not going to be Jeff Skinner type deals. I think the other reason I think it's hard um, to get a Skinner type deal is that Jeff Skinner's no movement clause drastically changed the face of the deal made this summer. He had to approve where he was going to go, which meant that if they, if the Carolina Hurricanes were dead set on moving him, they had to take what they could get, and they weren't really able to generate a market for him because even though he's a grade A player, they weren't able to price a grade A price because he was willing to, or he was only willing to say yes to a certain number of teams once those deals came in. So that being said, a Skinner deal might not exist. It was really the perfect storm of an elite player being an unrestricted free agent, a team wanting to sell that player in the last year of his contract, the player having a no movement clause that narrowed the window they could accept from and therefore lowered the answer price, and that player being willing to move or to waive the no movement clause to come to Buffalo. So you can get deals where you pry talent away from teams that either can't sign them or won't sign them, but getting a deal as cheap as Jeff Skinner is going to be a lot harder. But what I did is I took a quick look at teams who have have to sign their big guys, basically, in the near future. And what you do is you look for the guys or the teams who are going to be in a little bit of cap trouble when they have to sign their big guys going forward. And then you look for like their littler guys whose contracts are also up or better yet are up soon. So you get them for some time to negotiate. Um, let's see, scrolling back up. Uh, Jordan Deshane did recommend Yanni Gord and Jacob Truba as possibilities. And actually in the time between when he sent this message, and when I'm answering this question, Yanni Gord signed a six-year extension with the Lightning. And so we can write that one off. But Jacob Truba is a great shout. He's a restricted free agent this summer. And the Jets are already a little cap-pinched with a lot of long-term contracts. And they have to sign a guy named Patrick Laine this summer. And so Jacob Truba might be one where they're looking at the numbers thinking, I don't know if we have this one on the cards. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with him. Here's another one that's kind of interesting. Tyler Myers is an unrestricted free agent with the Jets this summer, and I'm wondering if the Sabres want to go back to that. Um, he was pretty successful here. He got paid too much money while he was a Sabre, um, but something maybe that they could be considering rather than trading, just going back in free agency for someone like him. I don't know if they necessarily need him with the decor that they're looking at right now, but something to be considered. Other items I looked at, the, the Penguins have to sign Jake Gensel this summer, and they're pretty strapped. But looking at the names you could buy as a result, it's a little limited. Like, do you make a call about Brian Rust? Riley Sheehan is an unrestricted free agent this summer. I think it's more likely that the Pens are going to be making calls, trying to pull off another cap dump like they did with the Sherry trade to Buffalo last season. They were rumored to be shopping Phil Kessel this summer. They might see that again, but I think it's more likely that the Pens are paying another team to take their bad contracts rather than a team um, coming in trying to take take an easy one off of the Pens. 
The Caps also have no cap space, and they have an arbitration-eligible RFA in Andre Burakovsky. That's one where you could come in and try to potentially offer the opportunity to save the Caps a bit of a headache. You could trade for the rights, and you go through the issues with arbitration. I know that's something that teams generally try to avoid. That can get kind of ugly. That one will be interesting as well. Toronto is also a great one as well. They've got Jake Gardner as an unrestricted free agent this season. He's an incredible contributor for them on the defensive end, and they don't have a whole lot of that, so they're going to want to keep him. They also have to sign Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews this summer, and they haven't even been able to sign William Nylander this summer. On top of that, they have so many other notable restricted free agents this summer, including Andreas Janssen and Kasperi Kapanen. Both of those guys were great for the Toronto Marlies. Kapanen has been great for the Leafs. They're going to have to sell someone. The way that the numbers are going to work out, they're not going to be able to keep all of these guys. If they want all the big guns, some of these guys like Andreas Janssen, who was an incredible contributor to the Marlies in their Calder Cup run last season, or Kapanen, who's doing it at the NHL level. He's kind of a hardworking bottom six player who's currently benefiting from playing like guys or with guys like John Tavares and Austin Matthews before he got hurt. So his numbers might be a little inflated, but he's a player I would love to take a look at. He kind of reminds me of like a a much more talented William Carrier, just a hardworking, hard-hitting, grafting player with actually a little bit more talent than you would maybe think he had right off the bat. So those are the names that I looked at for just teams that are going to have cap trouble who also have some other small issues that they, they might be willing to sell as a result of that. But again, it's going to be hard to pull off a deal, and it's going to be incredibly hard to pull off a deal like the Jeff Skinner trade. I think this summer we probably see the Sabres try to do more with their little bit of cap space with the Connor Sherry trade. We'll see what plays out. But a couple different names to take a look at. Jordan, thank you so much for your question. Remember, you can tweet us in at ickgaw or email us at ickgawpod at gmail.com. That's going to be about it for our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be coming at you next week with a recap of our games ahead, preview to what's going forward, and the usual nine as we go. Thank you so much for joining us. Keep those heads up, Sabres fans. It might not get much better, but remember, it can't get any worse. We'll see you guys soon. Dick in to Oposo. Oposo hanging on to it back at the point. Oposo drops it off in the corner to Eichel. Eichel buzzing around. Eichel in the side lane. Score!